Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our second guest, Linda Goldman, and we're going to be talking again about helping children deal with loss. Linda Goldman has degrees in counseling and early childhood education. The stillbirth of her daughter, Jennifer, 26 years ago, has greatly influenced her work with those who have suffered loss. She is the author of Great Answers to Difficult Questions About Death, What Children Need to Know. Welcome to the show, Linda. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me. It's great to have you on, Linda. Heidi was reading, you know, the name of the book we're looking at right now, Great uh-huh. Answers and Difficult Questions to Death, but my goodness, you're prolific, life and loss, breaking the silence, raising children to be resilient, children also grieve, wow. Now, was this really a, a lot result of your stillbirth child? Um, actually, yes, it was. Um, I had always always worked with children and losses as a teacher and a counselor in the school system for almost 20 years. And then I had my stillborn baby, Jennifer, and of course it was a very deep and one of those losses that are not always acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And Jennifer's death um, led me to take a real look. Was she full term? She was full term. Mm -hmm. Wow. And she died uh, at delivery? Yeah. Wow. And, you know, I got to hold her and be with her. And And you just didn't hear the baby cry? No. Yeah. Wow. That's that's really tough. I know there's so many people out there that are identifying with this and saying, "Wow." Well, actually, she had died um, before the birth, mm-hmm. and then I had to go through two days of labor. Oh, that's wow. incredible. Yeah. And um, but I was I felt very fortunate that I got to hold her and be with her. And this is sort of off of the question, but then um, I kept saying to my husband, "I wish I had a picture of Jennifer. People are going to think that that's crazy." Um, but I really do. And then mm-hmm. three weeks later, a kind nurse left a photograph of Jennifer on my car. Oh, my uh, gosh. And I had it, I took it to a photographer, and I had it made very soft. And it's a very treasured picture because besides holding her and being with her for that time, um, it, it just means so much to me. And I, I, I know this is off the question, and I will answer it, but I can't say how meaningful those kinds of things are when you have a prenatal loss. Mm -hmm. So Jennifer's death um, inspired me to work with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And I attended her life, death, and transition workshop in El Rito, New Mexico. And I came back um, just filled with ideas of how to work with kids um, with grief and loss and death issues. And that was the seed point for my career, not only as a grief therapist working with children, adolescents, and adults, and women with prenatal loss, and men as well, but um, also just um, my deep um, wanting to take everything I can learn from my clients and then give it back in some way through teaching and writing. Oh, that's a a wonderful, (laughs) and you've done so many uh, wonderful books and it's kind of an amazing thing. You know, um, I just know our audience out there, people who are newly buried, one thing Heidi and I love about this show is talking to people like you who have made, you know, 
show that life goes on and, and in big ways, huh? Well, um, you know, it's interesting. I feel like sometimes my work in the world is to hold that sacred space where people can grieve, where I think Megan was mentioning the dark side of grief, and I would say the deep side of grief that can go from the deepest sadness and loneliness to the greatest joy. I mean, grieving people can still laugh, and it's okay. But I feel like I can hold the space to say, as long as it takes you, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be with you. But here I am, and I came through, and you can too. Well, and that's such a wonderful <laughs> gift to give people. As long as it takes you, I will be yes. here for you. So few people hear that. Yeah. I think the greatest gift, the greatest, I mean, um, in- intervention that we can give grieving human beings is to allow them to tell their story, every piece of their story, every part of their story, as many times as they need to. Mm-hmm. And talk about that in connection with kids, because I know you talk about uh, these great to... answers to difficult questions. Yeah, that's that's my newest book, and the reason why I did that is really for parents more than any other group. My other books are for parents and professionals, but so often I hear, my child asked me this question and I don't know what to say. And so I thought how nice it would be not to have the exact words to use, but a model to give words to use so that... We can open up dialogue with our children. We, we can help them to grieve. Um, we can be there. Um, and, and one of the things that you talk about in the book, I, I love the book. It's got uh, these talks about the ages of children. And mm-hmm. we'll give a quick rundown on the difference between a, a child before the age of what nine, sure, seven or eight, and then one after. Sure. Well, not to get too intellectual, but I, I usually speak about Piaget's theory of cognitive development just on how kids see death at different age groups. And, you know, the pre-language age, it's it's very young, infants and toddlers. You know, their life is all gone, out of sight, out of mind. But still, they can absolutely feel feel and take in a grief environment and get frustrated by it. And then in the next stage, which you mentioned about up to nine, and that's the pre-operational stage, this is really important when, when working with young kids because it's marked by several things. Um, causality, egocentricity, and magical thinking, which just means that kids feel responsible. That if a little girl says to her older brother, I hate you, I wish that you were dead, and then the next morning he's killed in an accident, she feels her words created that. The big question for that age group is, is it my fault? And when I worked with a little girl, she was five years old, and her mom died in the Pentagon crash. She mm-hmm. said, Linda, it's, it's my fault my mommy died. And I said, why? She said, well, my mommy had a cold, and I didn't make her stay home. Mm-hmm. And the other piece for that particular age... Well, let me, let me say one thing, one, uh, stop you there, because I think something that you did that many of us don't do as parents is... You ask her a question. You didn't mm-hmm. say, "Oh, you shouldn't feel that way." Exactly. You know, that's not the way it is. You said, "Why?" And why the do you reason feel that way? why I do that is twofold. One is because children's questions are a window to their soul and their inner feelings. And when they ask you a question, it's important to see what's behind it. And only when kids can say that magical thinking and release it then we can come in with some reality checks about the real reason 
why their person died. Mm-hmm. Good point. And, th- and then we come up to what the older children that... There was one, it, it, also in that age group, just quickly, because this is important, kids think that death is reversible. So that even though Johnny may have gone to the funeral and the cemetery and thinks Grandpa's in heaven, he still might write, write a letter and expect to get that letter back. So mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. that's the other piece of the young ones. Right. But then as we go up in age, in the concrete stage, middle school years, kids are more realistic and curious. And the main question they ask is, I want to know the facts about how my person died. And I'll give you an example. A, 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 a child this age that I worked with said, Linda, my dad lo- died when I was very young, and I've heard so many different stories. Will you come with me to look it up in the newspaper? Only to discover dad had died of suicide. And um, she said it wasn't her dad's irrational act that caused so much pain, but the way the adults around her handled that act. So that was the age where she was ready to say, I really need to know the facts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so pick those facts up. And I know some of the things that you, you've got a wonderful section in the back where where you actually have a checklist for children of some things that they might think about. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, ideas like know the facts about the person's death, they may really want to know those facts. And maybe sometimes the parents can't tell them. Do you ever recommend that they that the parents get an advocate for their child or anything like that? Well, oftentimes, especially in complex issues like suicide, um, murder, um, hard issues, there's there may be a very big fear factor. And also, just how do I find the words to use? You know, I often suggest that ultimately... Um, kids have a conscious or unconscious knowing about what happened. and in today's Well, they also hear a lot more than you course. know. <laughs> yeah, and they hear from the media and friends, and it's very hard to keep a secret. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do is role play with the parent until they become comfortable and provide them with words to use to be able to talk to their child about it. Mm-hmm. And that's like age-appropriate that. dialoguing. So, you know, kids are usually satisfied with a couple sentences. Mm-hmm. And, and then they might come back and ask a few more questions. But it's really, you know, being prepared to say the unimaginable, and it can be done. Mm-hmm. Being prepared to say that. And, and how I is like it you talk idea, about... I, I like the idea okay. of role-playing, and I'm thinking for our listeners out there, if you want to have a dialogue and you're uncomfortable, even role-play with a trusted friend. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I wrote two children's books, and one is called Bard Speaks Out on Suicide, because there were no words to use to talk to young kids on this issue. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think people need words, and then they're more comfortable. Uh, there's some words that you give in here, and I, I was just uh, trying to think of what it was, but it's the way you talk about the body. Give me those words when someone... Oh, well, often with young children, um, they need to understand death. And a very simple definition is death is when the body stops working. Yeah, I really like that. Like, like, can you tell me what you can't do if your body doesn't work? You can't play on the computer or soccer, et cetera. And also that usually, usually, people die when they're very, very, very old or very, very, very sick. Or the doc- they're so injured that the doctors or nurses can't make their bodies work anymore. Now, what do you do? Hattie and I have talked about this before, and mm-hmm. uh, what about um, when there's been a loss and the child's a lost a parent, like in 9-11, mm-hmm. and um, they're concerned about the other parent? 
Well, that's so common. One thing we have to do is recognize that it's so it's a common thought for kids to worry excessively about their health and the health of the surviving parent. And especially with a traumatic event like 9-11. You know, one thing I've done, and this is such a simple thing, um, it's a reality check. If, a, if, a, if a, a child is concerned about their surviving parent, about their health, have them go to the doctor and get a checkup and have the doctor write a note to the child. Dear Amy, your dad had a checkup. He did great. Love, Dr. Tom. And that child will come to my office with, with that note that just helped reduce their anxiety. Another thing that I do is... Uh, I've got to say, I've loved that idea, and I've never heard it. It's fabulous, yeah. Linda. Thanks. And, and then another thing that I do, and there's many things we can do, is make a worry box and have a child decorate with what things they worry about and then write or draw that worry and put it in the box outside of themselves. Begin to take those worries away. They can also make a safe box filled with, like, very comforting objects that they pick, stuffed animals, toys that they can go to that makes them feel good. Um, so that's another thing that's helpful. One other thing that I do, one little girl had many deaths in her family, and she worried a lot. So I asked her to make a list of her top five worries, and her top worry after her mom died in a car crash was that Dad didn't wear his seatbelt. Mm-hmm. So I said, why don't you write Dad a letter? And she was happy to, and she she, she decorated this letter, wear your belt. Dear Dad, I want you to wear your belt because if you don't, I worry you'll get hurt. Circle yes, no, maybe sometimes. Please write me on the back. And she made a little pouch. And Dad wrote her back and said, um, you know, Dear Michelle, I'm so happy that you, you told me about this. I will always wear my seatbelt. I love you, Dad. So for that incident, um, their fears were re- her worries were reduced. Mm-hmm. And having him say that he could do that. Exactly. Really amazing. You talk about a memory table, too. I like that idea. Well, yes. You know, one question kids ask a lot is, will I forget my person? So we use memory work to help them remember. And um, a memory table is so easy. You can just put a sign-up memory table in a home, in a school, in a grief support group, and then kids can bring in a picture um, or a memory where they don't necessarily have to verbalize that. Um, we can also make memory books. And one of my books, Children Also Grieve, is an interactive storybook with my two dogs telling a story about grandfather's death. Um, and it's very beautiful with color pictures. But then it has a memory book where children can write and draw lots of different memories about their person, which, which they love to do. And um, it was interesting because I was listening to Megan, and this little storybook also ends with Henry the dog saying, you know, Grandfather will always be in my heart. Mm. So it is a good theme for children. I I notice in here, too, um, after we comment on this, we're going to have to go to break, but I noticed that you talked about have a locked diary. Your feelings and thoughts can be safely stored. I think that's important because of what Megan said. You know, she did all these drawings, but she didn't want anybody to see them. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe families can be a little invasive, too. Absolutely. And I give every child, young and teenager alike, a locked diary to safely house their feelings. Something else they can do... um, is whisper or shout into a tape recorder to get their feelings out. 
And then they can erase that if they choose, or they can use it to help share their feelings with others. Uh Well, Linda, um, tell people how to get to your website because it's just got all these wonderful books Uh on it. Uh, They're all published by Rutledge, is that right? Rutledge and Jessica Kingsley and WPS, three publishers. Oh, okay. Well, wonderful books. Give them your site. It's www.childrensgrief, all one word, .net. That's great. And Linda's uh, agreed to write for the foundation, so you'd be able to see some of her things on the <laughs> foundation site. It's wonderful. Yeah, well, Linda, I wanted to ask you, because I know there's some parents out there who already feel like they've blown it. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, after Scott died, I was pretty much a wreck, and I, mm-hmm. I don't think I was ever the best um, parent, you know, especially those you know, first I don't know, year or two or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um and maybe I was better than I thought I was, I don't know, but you, I you, I, you definitely know. were better than you thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> I think parents are so hard on themselves. They are. They are. I'm I was telling you, say us that. we're all human. We know, know that you guys are doing the best you can. You're going through a lot. We totally understand yeah. that. And the kids get to see you're human. You mm-hmm. know. Well, they certainly do see it. So, uh, so I've got somebody out there, and they are telling me that, um, and you know, this is from uh, one of our listeners, Mm -hmm. that um, they didn't allow their child to go to the funeral, and Mm -hmm. they were seven, and now they're ten, and they're Mm -hmm. angry about it. The child is angry about it. Okay, and you know, of course, you know, if we, we had our druthers and we could talk to a lot of people before the funeral. If we can prepare children, invite them and not force them, um, it, it's, it, and give them choices, it's a good idea to have kids come. Um, and if they want to leave, have a designated person to take them outside and blow bubbles to remember their person. But I also feel like it's never too late. And so if that child is angry that they didn't get to go to the funeral, I would acknowledge that, yes, you know, I can understand why you're angry. And after you talk about the anger with that child, let's brainstorm. What do you think you would like to do so we could have um, a commemoration now, even though you didn't go then? Maybe they'd like to have a little ceremony. Maybe the family could come together and light a candle. Maybe they could bake all the dishes that their person liked that died. But I don't think it's too late, and I think... Even when the child is 10, they're at an age where if you let that child brainstorm what they'd like to do, they'll come up with some good ideas. And especially if they take a look at your book, too, because I'm thinking they can do memory tables and right. all sorts memory. of things. They could still. do a memory book together as a family. Um, they could plant. A, they could go find a beautiful um, bush and let the child pick it out and plant a, a, some, some bushes in the backyard and... There's many things they can do together. Um, they could make a memory book of pictures together of experiences with their person that died and call it our family book. I also give every child and teen um, a photograph album, and they get to pick the pictures that they'd like to use and write or dictate a sentence, and then they make um, a book about their life. Mm. Love it. So, so Linda, I know you've written a book on resilience in children also, and are these yes. some of the things you could do to increase resilience in children that have had loss, the things that we're talking about, and is there anything else that comes to mind? Yes, and, and you know, um, I think the most important thing we can do is include children as recognized mourners, even though we may be afraid to do it at an age appro- in an age-appropriate way. And if we haven't done it, it's never too late because we always can begin to include them. Um, 
when I talk about resilience, this is what I mean. So often people feel that grieving and traumatized children are broken and needing to be fixed. Mm -hmm. But it's important to understand that the deeper way we can work with them is to support those natural attributes of resiliency. For example, one girl had someone die at the Twin Towers. She was six years old. She drew this beautiful picture of people crying, towers in the background, and angels. And she said, once upon a time, um, angels were watching, and God knew that everything was okay. Mm. So we knew then and there that we could support her spiritual belief system. One girl's dad was killed in um, Flight 800, and he was a beautiful, wonderful composer. She was a young girl. Now she's a young woman. She has a beautiful, beautiful operatic voice. We supported her natural resilient attribute of wanting to give back to the community by having her give this concert for hundreds of people singing her father's songs because she wanted everyone to get to know her dad. So I think whatever child you're working with, you can support the resilient attributes that they resonate with. There was a little girl named Megan. She was seven years old. She became an advocate after 9-11. She wrote President Bush a Bush a letter. And she said, I don't know why this happened to you. I get sad, she said. And then she gave him some advice. If you ever feel sad or mad, you should really talk to your parents. <laughs> That's good. I love that. Well, one yeah. of the things that you point out in your book, too, is that we do grieve, grieve in different ways through our lifetime, the same loss. It becomes a different a different mm-hmm. thing. Mhm. Um children regrieve a different developmental That's the word I wanted, regrieve. Regrieve at different developmental stages. I-, I can give you an example. A 16-year-old after his dad was killed um at not- at the Twin Towers said to his mother, and this isn't the right example I wanted to give. It's another 16-year-old. His only experience was remembering when he was 5 playing with dad with cars and trucks. When he was 16 years old, and he got his license, guess where he went? And where? He drove to the the cemetery uh-huh. to visit his dad and share with dad that he got his license. Uh-huh. He was re-grieving at a different developmental stage. I love that. I think that for our audience out there, the re-grieving idea is an important one, and, I, and I like mm-hmm. that word because don't don't think they haven't gotten over it. Yeah, I mean, I can say no matter where I've talked about children in grief, in America, in China, I get the same question. How long does grief last? Mm -hmm. And it's one I really don't like to answer because as long as you love someone, there are going to be times when we're all hit with an enormous wave of grief when we least expect it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, continuing bonds with people we want exactly. to. We want to remember them. I mean, we they're part of the fabric them. of our lives. Yeah, Why would we want to forget? That's and, and going through major monumental events in our lives that's without right. that person brings up the loss. I mean, graduations and marriages and, and babies, children. Yep, yeah, absolutely. And each time it does, where's my mother? She's not mm-hmm. here for me when I had my first baby. And there's that little pain. But also, I think we forget some of the regrieving is funny. I mean, there'll be little events that'll remind us, and it kind of tugs at our heartstrings, but it also makes us laugh. And, you know, I I can't underscore the point that we can still laugh and grieve. Mm -hmm. Like one family, um, 
they had a little girl die. There were several children in the family. And after she died, the family decided that every year on her birthday, they were going to go out and for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they were going to eat their way through the day with all the foods that she liked. And they really had fun doing that. And so sometimes we can um, remember in that way. Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you so much for being on the show today and for for all the work that you've done with children. And everyone should go to your website and take a look at it and also get your books. You've got wonderful books, children'sgrief.net. And thanks for being on the show, Linda. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.